Okay. We're here with Dana Harmon. Dana is Executive Director of the Texas Energy Poverty Research Institute. Uh, Dana has an engineering degree from Georgia Tech. Uh, she has been involved prior to this position in a couple of startups at least in a marketing position. Uh, but now you're here and you're focusing full-time on energy poverty issues here in Texas. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Can you start, uh, Dana, by giving us a little bit of a snapshot of the energy poverty issue or energy poverty problem, uh, especially here in Texas, but to the extent you can speak about it elsewhere, um, please do so. You know, what, how serious a problem is it and what resources are out there to help people deal with it? Sure, sure. I'll be happy to. So we define energy poverty as a condition in which the cost of energy needed to maintain a healthy lifestyle creates an, a significant or unnecessary economic burden. Um, you know, we talk in our circles a lot about the concept of energy burden, um, and so that's really the cost of, of energy uh, over household income. Typically, energy burdened is considered somewhere around 6%. So if 6% of your, your um, household income is going towards energy costs or over, that can create some, uh, some you know, very real hardships. High energy burdens are a, a very real issue because people end up being forced to make trade-offs for basic necessities. And, you know, the, the data shows that people will um, forego things like food and medicine and, you know, make choices about how to, rather to, to pay the rent or the mortgage or keep the lights on. Really paying attention to and understanding this issue is important because there are very real social and quality of life implications. People often think about, if you say the word energy poverty, people think about third world countries and perhaps a lack of access to electricity. Here in this country, we're fortunate where we've got widespread access to, to electricity, but it's really an, an issue of affordability um, and one that's quite meaningful. In Texas right now, there's a $3.5 billion gap in home energy affordability, meaning it would take $3.5 billion to get to that 6% number that we described. Across the country, that gap is $51 billion. So there's a significant uh, opportunity there to, to really better serve our low-income neighbors. There, there are programs in place. Um, LIHEAP, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, um, is the, the federal program uh, that has been in place to help people pay their energy bills. Um, right now in Texas, that program is serving less than 5% of the eligible population. Um, and that's not less than 5% of the total population, that's the, the eligible population for the program, which is the group of people at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Um, so there's, there's really a need for more and better solutions that can help address this issue. Okay, so um, I want to talk a little bit about or get your thoughts about um, the green transition and how it might affect uh, this vulnerable population that we've been talking about. We often say that um, a, a transition to a greener energy mix is likely to help the most vulnerable because climate change has a disproportionate effect on poorer and more and uh, socioeconomically distressed populations in the first place. So that to the extent that we can uh, address climate change, mitigate it, uh, we are likely to avoid some of those adverse effects that they suffer, right? Uh, so uh, we, we are aware of that sort of distributional side of the coin, but we don't talk as much about the possibility of the green transition itself having disproportionately negative effects on 
uh, that those same vulnerable populations in the form of higher costs or shifts of costs uh, uh, toward them. So I want to get your, your thoughts on some of those issues. And there's sort of two ways I think about this. The first way, and let's talk about this first, is that uh, people who have modeled a zero emission electric grid of the future almost invariably um, find that at the end of the process we have electricity that is at least a little bit more expensive than it is now. If it's 100% renewable, it's probably significantly more expensive than it is now. And um, a, a dollar of additional cost to a person who has fewer dollars is a, is a bigger hit. And so I want to uh, get a sense of what your organization thinks about that or how you plan to address that as a, as a research organization. One of the things that we're trying to do as a as research or organization um, is in addition to kind of shedding vis visibility on energy burdens and how they're experienced by different populations, um, we also want to try to draw our system boundaries as such that we are tracking financial, social, and environmental effects of the transition as it takes place um, in a way that we can understand the implications. If we do make a change in a rate design, for example, um, we're, we're watching the effects on low-income communities specifically and making sure that negative effects aren't being experienced. Um, one of the things that we've talked about is, um, for example, is more and more distributed energy resources are coming online. Um, and uh, in many cases, the cost of the uh, infrastructure is borne by those who aren't able to participate um, in rooftop solar, um, et cetera. And that's one of the things that we'd like to monitor very closely to make sure that there are ways to encourage equitable participation uh, in the transition as, as it makes sense. That being said, though, um, our, our studies show that, you know, number one, we've got to make sure that we're, we're saving folks money um, in terms of access to solar. Uh, I want to come back to that distributed energy question in a second, but before we leave this sort of general question about the price of energy, does TEPRI get involved in sort of non-price of electricity elements of additional costs? For example, in a, in a greener future in the United States, we'll have more electric vehicles and fewer mm -hmm. gas-powered vehicles. We'll have houses that may be required to have generation on the roof or at least other forms of energy efficiency built in. All of these things make the initial purchase more expensive. Mm -hmm. Is TEPRI uh, fo focused or planning to focus some of its efforts on uh, those kinds of uh, distributional questions? Absolutely. It, it, it's a great question. You know, when we, we started this work, we were looking um, – pretty much exclusively at really electricity burdens um, on, for low-income households. Um, but as we've kind of peeled back the onion, um, I think there, there are kind of two pieces there that, that we are recognizing that we need to explore. Um, the, the, the first is, as we're talking about electricity and then broader energy issues, um, you know, very quickly we start talking about transportation and access to transportation. And as this wave of electric vehicles is coming, um, you know, there's a lot of um, discussion about opportunities to not re just reduce energy burden, but reduce transportation burden and grant additional access to low-income people. And how do you make those things make sense? 
Um, you know, in that discussion, we found ourselves in very deep conversation with the housing community, with community development corporations, and trying to understand really what's driving um, affordable housing and where it's built and how. And when that happens, um, how do we make sure that there are there's the right mix of both um, energy efficiency retrofits as well as where it makes sense access to solar and potentially EV charging stations. Um, and so I, I think that we're, we are um, sort of necessarily, by the nature of this work, expanding, you know, drawing our boundaries more broadly because those are very important parts of the equation. Um, you know, energy, uh, excuse me, poverty is a complex and multidimensional phenomenon, and these relationships between energy and health, uh, housing and health and transportation are all very interconnected in the lives of people, of real people. And I think it's, um, you know, our responsibility to make sure that we're looking at the interplay between each of those aspects so that we're better serving our communities. The other point of the question uh, that, that you just asked, um, or at least the, the way that I interpreted it, was about um, access to capital, access to resources. Um, and, you know, traditionally, uh, the low-income community has had limited access to be able to make investments. And, you know, especially given... Um, uh, the high population of renters of people that don't own their own homes and you know what opportunities do we are we offering for people who want to participate perhaps in the clean energy transition but may not have the access to capital or the resources to do so and so I think it's a, it's really a suite of solutions that are going to be demanded by this population um, that um, will evolve over over time yeah so let's turn to the um so participation in issue you raised a couple of times in connection with distributed solar, or distributed mm -hmm. energy resources. Well, let's let's start by sort of acknowledging that um, people who put solar on their roofs sell some of the excess generation from those solar panels back to the, the grid, and they sell it at a rate that's higher, considerably higher than a utility-scale solar generator gets when they sell their resources to the grid. Typically, the people that invest in rooftop solar are, don't have the kind of capital, access to capital problems that you just mentioned. They tend to be relatively well off compared to the other uh, participants on that same section of the grid. And so one of the problems we worry about, one of the distributional issues we worry about is how can we allow, how can we facilitate uh, the participation of other people in this this distributed solar market. And I understand that TEPRI's sponsored some projects or some research uh, that that uh, deal with this issue. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, I, you know, I really do um, like this topic a lot. Um, and there, there are two projects that I'd like to bring up just as examples of, of some of the stuff that we're working on. Um, so we are working with a municipal utility and a solar developer uh, here in Texas on a low-income community solar program design. Um, and as part of that effort, one of the exercises that we went through was basically a landscape analysis of low income community solar programs across the U.S., um, kind of understanding what's out there, what's working, um, what lessons learned can we take advantage of, um, and then kind of use that to inform the initial program design, um, but then additionally did a um, really a marketing analysis for this specific service territory and said, you know, what is it that this community really needs um, in terms of their, their preferences for access, for choice, for 
how do, how do I meet the needs of uh, their energy needs with this community solar program? I've got some really, really interesting findings. And for this particular service territory, for example, we ended up doing a market uh, segmentation of the low-income community and came up with three really interesting consumer profiles, which were made up of um, kind of a, a young up-and-comer who may not be low-income his entire career, but is now, um, just because young probably doesn't own his own home yet, probably doesn't have kids, but, you know, in his future. Um, and he was part of our, our target market for this program. There's another group that we called the uh, responsible citizen, and these were hardworking citizens um, that are, you know, very involved in the community, but teachers, uh, firefighters, policemen, EMT, EMT workers, um, you know, many uh, veterans uh, were, were involved, and, you know, who want to... Uh, invest in their community and do good for future generations by investing in solar, but also are looking for the, the savings because they're, you know, they're pinching every penny. Um, and then our third profile was actually what we call the penny pincher. So this was the person who is sort of frugal by nature, used to living on a budget, and sort of always has, and really the bottom line impact is what's going to matter matter to her. And, you know, the fact we're going to have to convince her to participate in the program that there's really financial savings, that she's just going to see the savings out of it. There's one other project that I'd like to talk about, which is um, another project here in Texas, looking at the um, energy affordability gap for the residents, uh, the low-income residents of the city of Houston. Again, that gap being sort of the, the difference between the city median and what we consider affordable and what they're actually paying. Um, but then we're also doing an inventory of the um, low-income housing stock, um, both multi- and uh, single-family housing in Houston. Um, and so that's, that's you know, big A affordable housing, tax credit properties, and little a affordable, which is market rate where low-income people are living. And in those buildings, actually looking at both energy efficiency, technical and achievable potential, as well as rooftop solar technical and achievable potential. One issue that has been a sort of constant uh, comes up a lot in the discussions about energy trade-offs, um, including among the participants in the energytradeoffs.com website, and I've talked to a number of people about, um, is the question of whether uh, the payment of these high rates for excess solar power from uh, rooftop solar units, especially in places where the ratepayers are paying a bundled rate to cover not only the cost of the energy they receive, but also their share of the costs of maintaining the grid, mm -hmm. so that if they reduce their monthly bill to close to zero, they're basically not contributing much of anything to the maintenance of the grid. The question of whether in a world where that kind of system or that, that arrangement rather grows and becomes much more common, whether we're shifting costs or too many costs from the people who adopt rooftop solar, who participate in rooftop solar, to the people who don't. Um, and if, as is the case now, that first group tends to be uh, typically better off economically than the, the latter group, whether that's a regressive policy we want to, we want to stop. Um, and, I've, and we have sort of dis disagreement in the literature about that. Mm -hmm. We have disagreement over the value of rooftop solar and uh, quite widespread uh, variation in estimates of that of the value uh, here in Austin and in, in San Antonio, where we have municipal utilities, we pay pretty uh, favorable rates for that that excess power. I, I wonder if this is an issue that Tepri thinks about, or whether it's an issue that um, 
you know, is, is not necessarily a high priority because the rates of adoption of rooftop solar are so low at this point. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about how Tepri thinks about that issue? Sure, I'll, I'll be happy to. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of rate design and how you pay for the grid um, and, and the infrastructure costs, it, it's certainly a, a complex um, set of thinking, and I, I won't pretend to be an expert in rate design, um, but what I can say is that, you know, as rate payers, if, as we are all, you know, paying into certain services, um, I do think it's worthwhile to understand who's recognizing the benefits of those services. Um, so, you know, one thing that we do try to be relatively as careful as we can, um, you know, about is while we are specifically investigating this issue of um, energy and poverty, we do try to be very careful about, um, you know, taking specific policy positions or, or recommendations. Um, but I think really the role that we can play is try to shed some visibility onto what those effects are um, in terms of who's, um, who's experiencing potential negative effects. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think the, what the, the customer sees is the cost of their bill, right? right? It's how, how much they, they're having to pay for that, that energy cost. And I think that's what we are, um, you know, very sensitive to in terms of rate increases or, or rate impacts for, for low-income communities. Um, it's a, it's a tough one, right? It, it, it's a tough problem. Um, and I think that we've, I think really our, our challenge is to kind of keep all of these variables in our minds at the same time um, as we're, we're figuring out how to navigate this transition. And I, I, I commend you and your colleagues and, um, you know, kind of the, the others who are really starting to, to make sure that these equity issues and access for all and sort of these conversations are happening all over the country. Uh, you know, I think it's really important that we we are watching equity issues as we are figuring out each of each of these problems. Yeah, and one other sort of element of decentralization as a more general topic is um, that some people foresee a future and and would like to see a future in which uh, more of the responsibility for ensuring a reliable supply falls on the customer. So people install batteries. The sort of grid has a somewhat lower level than the ultra high level of reliability that it has right now. And if you want to maintain those high levels of reliability or cover those times when uh, the green grid isn't providing you with electricity, you have to invest yourself in something, whether it's your own generation or batteries or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, that's another one of those situations where uh, sort of access to capital and the value of a dollar is going to matter to mm -hmm. some people if we're putting that responsibility on them. And so, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. We want to. We don't want to lose sight of these issues as we envision these ideal worlds of the future. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agreed. And um, you know, and I, again, I, I'm not. I, I don't. Consumer preference is driving a, a lot of of that discussion, right? And um, it, it is. It's, super exciting time to, to be in this space. I do think there's progress to be made in terms of innovative financial models um, that can provide access to people who traditionally have had poor credit or no credit. And, you know, I think, I think that there, 
are innovative ways to sort of de-risk some of those investments uh, in a way that, that can enable a market that do allow more people to participate. And we've had you know several really interesting conversations with Connecticut Green Bank, for example, some of the work that they've done um, up there. And there, there's a new, um, actually, I think they have a spinoff that they're uh, looking to take nationwide called um, Inclusive Prosperity Capital, um, which is taking some of the work that they're doing and saying, okay, how do we make sure that um, everyone has access to capital uh, financing required to make some of those investments? Does any of that address the issue you mentioned earlier about the mismatch of incentives when you have a renter? versus a building owner? Unfortunately, no. I feel like that, um, you know, the split incentive issue is, is certainly, it, it's a tricky one. Um, and none that I've seen in terms of specifically what Connecticut Green Bank is doing, although they've got some really innovative products. So there, there may be something there that I'm not aware of. Um, but, you know, I think the split incentive issue where, you know, the, the landlord has to make the investment that the tenant pays the utility bills is still a major issue. And I think that's one we just haven't solved yet. Yeah, it's been a big problem in the energy efficiency investment world for a long time. Thanks so much for sitting down and talking to us. David, thank you.